Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to dive into a topic that is after my own heart, and that has to do with plant chemistry, and in particular, the poisons of nature. We have a fabulous author on the show who wrote The Most Delicious Poison. His name is Dr. Noah Whiteman. He's a professor of evolutionary biology in the Department of Integrative Biology and of Molecular and Cell Biology at University of California, Berkeley. He runs a basic research lab that studies plant-animal co-evolution. And in 2020, he received a Guggenheim Fellowship to write Most Delicious Poison, and in the same year was also elected to the Royal Entomological Society, the California Academy of Sciences, and the Board of Directors of the Genetics Society of America. Noah received his bachelor's from St. John's University in Minnesota, and then completed a master's in aquatic entomology and lastly studied native birds of the Galapagos Islands for his PhD research, receiving his uh, PhD in 2006. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Noah. It's really great to meet you. Oh, it's my pleasure, uh, Dr. Quave, to be with you. I'm a fan of your work. and <laughs> We are kindred spirits. <laughs> we are 100%. I was like this. Your book, number one, was so beautifully written both from a, kind of just a storytelling perspective, but also I loved all of the really cool details that you bring into the stories around plant natural products, and including plants that I think many of us encounter on a daily basis, but perhaps don't know the full backstory behind them. So let's start maybe with one of those foods. Let's start about with coffee. You speak about caffeine in the book. What can you tell us about coffee and how you select the way that you prepare coffee based on your knowledge of these plant natural products? Sure. Coffee, the genus Coffea, has many species endemic to Africa. In fact, I'm drinking some right now because I didn't get my full dose of caffeine this morning. <laughs> nice. And yes, in the book, I talk about caffeine. Initially, the question that you and I, questions that you and I would ask are like, why would a plant make caffeine, this alkaloid that binds to our adenosine receptors and blocks adenosine from binding to them, keeps us awake. Why would a plant make that? It's certainly not for our sake. And we know that because caffeine evolved many times independently across plants. So it evolved uh, once in the Coffea lineage, and then in other lineages like tea and cacao and several others, including the holly family which yerba mate is uh, a holly. And so one of, the, one of the early studies that was conducted by James Nathanson at Harvard Medical School showed that caffeine likely evolved in high concentrations, one to 3%, which is what is found in coffee beans and tea leaves to protect plants from insects. So it serves as this potent insecticide. That's at least one functional role. And another role seems to be in plants like citrus where it's evolved independently, they put it in their nectar of the flowers. And, really? Yeah. And that, hey, what's amazing is that the levels in the nectar are below the bitter detection threshold rejection levels for bees, but it's enough to cause the bees to come back to the flower and get reward. It, it, it triggers this reward circuit so that there's an enhanced memory and this sort of false elevated reward and, and they recruit their sisters if they're honeybees or bumblebees back to those flowers. And that is not great for the bees because at some point they're losing out right on, on other plant nectar and pollen sources. So 
for me, that's that was my initial kind of fascination with coffee was because it makes caffeine. And I'm it's such a ritual for me to wake up in the morning. It's the first thing I think about. And as I was writing the book, I became very interested in why am I so obsessed with it? It can't just <laughs> that it keeps me awake. I could just take a pill, but I don't. There's a ritual aspect to it because, of course, there's aromas, right? The sound of the grounding. I do think there's something essential about the human condition and these rituals that we have. But then as I was doing more research, the way that I used to make coffee was by using a French press. And you take the grounds, you dump it in the bottom of the mm-hmm. vessel, you pour boiling water in there, and then you let it sit for two or three minutes. And then you plunge it down, right, with that, that metal kind of plunger that has somewhat of a filter, but it's pretty coarse grain. And then you pour that delicious, rich coffee in your cup. And then if you look at the surface of it, you can see these almost like butter-like rafts floating. Yeah. Probably everyone has seen that. It's almost like looking at a puddle. You're walking in a parking lot. You're like, oh, there's some oil on that puddle. Those hydrocarbons, some of those are these diterpene alcohols that include ones like cafestol and another one called kawiol. And it turns out that those are the two most potent LDL cholesterol inducing compounds in the human diet. They bind to a receptor, it's thought, that sort of tricks the body into making more LDL, tricks the liver into making more LDL cholesterol. And it absolutely does this in clinical trials. You can induce maybe 10% higher LDL levels or even higher depending on the situation. If it's, and this was originally found in Scandinavia, in Scandinavian boiled coffee, which is made in a kind of similar way to French press, no real filter. And there's no ability for the grounds to themselves to filter out the small particles to which these diterpene alcohols sometimes bind. So I did this, as you can tell, I did this deep dive into trying to understand why I stumbled on this thing like, whoa, if you drink Scandinavian boiled coffee, which means if you drink French press, LDL cholesterols go up. And in fact, in these long-term studies, these cross-sectional studies that were done in Scandinavia, it was shown that coffee drinkers actually had higher death risk and higher cardiovascular event risk initially back in the 70s and 80s. And this was this is confusing because if you look at these very large cohort studies now, it's yeah. absolutely true that drinking coffee is associated with lower risk of death, <laughs> lower cardiovascular events. So how can both be true at the same time? And it seems that the reason is the, these diterpene alcohols were not being filtered out in some of the methods of coffee drinking preparation that were being used in Scandinavia in particular. And so scientists, nutritional scientists tease this apart in epidemiologists. And now to me, it's very convincing that we can explain this two-sidedness to coffee, right? By looking at these combinations of studies. So now I do not use a French press anymore. And I felt I, I either use auto drip or I use a pour over. And when I use the auto drip, I either use a gold mesh filter or a paper filter. And what's interesting is that if you look at a gold mesh filter, you're like, the diterpene alcohols can get through that mesh. How is this different than a French press? <laughs> and it's a great yeah. gen, right? So when people looked at the amount of these diterpene alcohols that make it through the paper filter, the paper filter does catch some of them, but maybe fewer of them than fewer molecules than we would think. Instead, it's the coffee 
filter cake, the grounds themselves that catch the small particles, most of them before they get through there. So it's as if the grounds act as a filter themselves. And that's also true in the auto drip, whether it's a gold mesh oh. or paper filter. Yes. So, and the reason this is interesting is that, and this is like seriously arcane, the percolators, like in the old church basement, you know, yeah, the, yeah, those don't have a filter except a really coarse little pinholes, but they have very low ditropine alcohol in the brew. So how can that be? And if you think about it, there's a cake that forms up there in that metal filter and it prevents most of the small particles that to which these ditropine alcohols bind to getting through. So yes, so it took me a long time to get through all this stuff, but I landed in this very interesting place. So now I, the truth is though, I do every day drink a cappuccino and espresso. I was about to ask, I was like, espresso and cappuccino? Tell me it's yeah. not true because I love my morning cappuccino. I know, an epidemiological study that's correlational. So there's, there could be this yeah. selection bias, right? That could be driving the pattern. So we can't link cause and effect, but... This study showed that espresso drinking is correlated with, in a dose-dependent way, with an increase in LDL cholesterol levels. And then when they've done the analysis of the ditropine alcohols, it's in between something like Scandinavian boiled coffee and something like a paper filter auto drip. So mm -hmm. it's modest levels. Okay. And so I would say it's far less of a concern. At the same time, it does increase LDL cholesterol levels, probably. And that could be a problem for some people and some populations. I think one has to, like all things, yeah. careful when evaluating this evidence. That's great. No, my last health checkup, I had higher cholesterol. I'm like, wait, mm. <laughs> I blamed it on the cheese. Maybe it's that morning cappuccino. So the same would hold true that I'm guessing for Turkish coffee because you actually are getting yes. grounds and yes, the no. Turkish coffee, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Turkish coffee, Scandinavian yeah. world and French press were lumped up there at the high end. That's right. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Yep. All right. Okay. So plants are making these molecules either to attract pollinators or to defend them from insects. And as an entomologist, you've had a lot of training in understanding this. I, in the book, I loved your discussion of caterpillars and monarchs and milkweeds. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. And for those of you that aren't familiar with milkweeds, it's in the genus Sisclepius, right? So you have, these are like the butterfly plants that we want to plant for the monarch butterflies, but what's actually happening in the milk of that weed? <laughs> yeah, so that family, the Apocinaceae, the dogbane family, um, includes plants that are mostly tropical all over the world. And the ones in North America that you were just talking about that are in the genus Asclepius, yeah, the milkweeds, those are the food plants for the caterpillars, the larvae of the monarch butterfly. And it turns out many other uh, species in that genus can feed on, need to feed on these plants. And when I say need, they cannot develop on diet that isn't a milkweed plant. So that's really interesting. And the reason yeah. it's interesting is that in the milky sap, which is where they get their name from, that's a latex. And in the latex are these heart poisons called cardiac glycosides. And these are steroid molecules with a lactone ring. And they target a very important pump in our cells called the sodium potassium pump. And if that pump stops working, the ability of this cell to keep a concentration gradient of ions of salt is disturbed, disrupted. And that can cause problems. So, and one of the organs in which that causes a major problem is the heart, which is why they're called cardiac or glycosides mm -hmm. or heart poisons. 
But the irony is that just as caffeine has evolved multiple times across plants independently in different lineages, that is also true of cardiac glycoside. So they've evolved many times independently, actually many more than caffeine. Even in things like fireflies, they make them. Really? Yes. Wow. And they have evolved warning coloration. So if you've looked at a firefly during the day, it's, ooh, it's pretty. It's like black and orange and red and yellow. And toads, some toads also make these and store them in the big glands behind their eyes, the parotid glands. And if a toad is attacked, say, by a dog or something or a snake, it will secrete out of those glands this milky substance. And in that are cardiac glycosides often. So these plants are making this cardiac glycoside. Now plants, oh, I have a plant cell. I brought this just for you. Oh, beautiful. Well, yes. We have a little model. demo here. A little model. Oh, okay. Model. I think that's the chlor. Is that a vacuole? Yes. And the chloroplast must be here. See, the problem is I'm color. All these things are color coded. <laughs> but yeah, so plants, the reason I show that is plants do not have a sodium pump. So they make this poison that targets when Achilles heal. All animals have a sodium pump. Every mm -hmm. animal alive does that's ever lived. So from the perspective of evolution, from adaptation, it's a pretty amazing, ingenious thing that has evolved. And the plants are making this. Most insects, they take a bite of that. Actually, this is, an also, this is another good point. The first thing that happens when an animal takes a bite of something containing a cardiac glycoside is that it would immediately detect, oh, this is really bitter, and it would spit it out. But if it went the next step and swallowed it, it would have an emetic reaction so it would vomit and this is there's a famous series of photos that were taken by lincoln brower of a blue jay that he had trained from birth as a pet to in experiments to feed on different things and it had never seen a monarch before so he gave it a monarch to eat and it ripped the wings off which is what birds do with butterflies which is interesting and by the way monarchs do carry a lot of cardiac glycosides in their wings so it rips the wings off, but then it eats the whole body. And then the next series of photos of the poor blue jay, it's oh, like we've no. all been there. It's breast <laughs> kind of pops up, its head tilts, and it vomits. So yes, birds can vomit. Who knew? So he, Lincoln developed this, these, this sort of study system with blue jays and trying to understand how many doses of monarch would it take to get a bird to vomit. And he found in that rests the sort of essential part of this story, which is that as caterpillars, the monarch caterpillars consume the leaves of the milkweed and they sequester, they retain the cardiac glycosides in their body and they keep those, they lose some of them during molting, but they mostly keep them as they molt and become a chrysalis, they're still there. And then when they emerge as a butterfly from the chrysalis, they retain those cardiac glycosides from the plant. And then wow. they fly with those, say they emerge in a prairie in a bog in Northern Minnesota to pick a non-random example. They, the adults at the end of the season, those butterflies will make their way all the way down to Michoacan, Mexico. They will carry those cardiac glycosides with them the whole way. They don't get any more. And they're protected from birds on the way down largely because of those toxins. It's incredible. It's like your own like poison to go package. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's right. Their tissue. Card Cardiac glycosides are fascinating. It's like you're saying, it's popping up in the dog bane family. Another plant that you wrote about that I found to be particularly interesting is the foxglove, which is in the, I think it's a Plantagenesee family. Tell us a little bit more about foxglove and how that's not only a poison, but also has been important for medicine today. 
sure. On the UK and Commonwealth version of my book, they actually put a foxglove flower. Oh, beautiful. I love that. And, and actually they put a monarch. They're connected, even though the monarch would never, you know, they would never feed on a, on a foxglove plant. Yeah. So the foxglove plants, which are native to Europe and Asia, the ones that we think of the digitalis Mm -hmm. have the beautiful column of flowers that, that you would see planted in gardens all over the world. So they also contain cardiac glycosides and two of the most abundant are digoxin and digitoxin. And those chemicals are actually still prescribed for, in particular, for arrhythmias in the United States. I think a million prescriptions were prescribed last year. Wow. It's not a preferred drug because the the difference between a dangerous dose and a therapeutic dose is very narrow. And so people have to be monitored very carefully for their, how much do they still have in their blood after they take a, a digoxin pill. Used to be used, the powdered form of the leaves was used to treat something called dropsy, which basically is congestive heart failure, the symptoms of that, which would be fluid buildup in the lungs. And William Withering in the 18th century supposedly got this information from, and he wrote about this, quote, an old woman from Shropshire had this recipe that was handed down from who knows where, maybe her mother or grandmother. And he got that information and it was a bunch of herbs on there, but somehow he discerned that he figured out that it was foxglove that was the, the, the plant that was really linked with treating dropsy. And so he just focused on that and started experimenting with it and conducted what we would call a clinical trial. So really took detailed notes, had people that took it or didn't and recorded their responses. It wasn't a double blind placebo control clinical trial, but it was, it was close. And from that, we eventually get the drugs, digoxin and digitoxin. But that, that, that brings up this more general point that, you know, folk knowledge, local knowledge, indigenous knowledge is usually the source for most of the drugs that we have that are derived from plants. Yeah. No, it's incredible. If you ask someone, even ask physicians, do you ever prescribe plant-derived drugs? There's this knowledge gap where they don't realize that many of these drugs actually do originate in plants. You also wrote about artemisinin, which is a, another great story. Maybe we could jump to that next, but that's a, a, a great example of a recent drug discovered in what, the 1970s. There was a Nobel Prize awarded in 2015 for that discovery for treating malaria. And we've long relied on plants for malaria. I guess a bigger question would be, out of all of these plants that you researched for this, which ones really captured your greatest level of curiosity? Because you tell so many great stories. I could go, I could, we could talk for hours <laughs> about yeah. the different ones, but are there certain ones that really surprised you and how they've really, how humans and these plants have co-evolved? Yeah. You know, yeah. Just going back to the things that make cardiac glycoside, because I'd studied those in the context of how the monarchs have evolved the ability to resist the toxins. So my lab did research to understand how the sodium pumps in the monarchs have evolved to resist the, these heart poisons. And so we used CRISPR and fruit flies in their sodium pumps to put the mutations from the monarch into them and showed that they were necessary for certain mutations that had, had evolved were absolutely necessary for resistance, at least in that context. So that kind of captured my imagination. And then I found this link from cardiac glycosides to the birth control pill that I had no idea existed before I was doing research for the book. 
And I guess that's one of the most rewarding things and surprising things was that there are all these threads that were hidden that are there that are connecting mm -hmm. the disparate topics, sometimes disparate plant families, sometimes just disparate molecules. Because you'd think a cardiac glycoside, a birth control pill, that's like a progesterone. What am I talking about? What they have in common is a steroid backbone. And I learned that there was a critical experiment done where this cardiac glycoside from something called the poison arrow tree, which is in the Apocynaceae family, but grows in Africa and was, has been used for millennia there, especially in East Africa as an arrow poison, as a medicinal, and to do many other things. Mm -hmm. And the active ingredients are cardiac glycosides, including one called Wabain, which is spelled O-U-A-B-A-I-N. And it's from this, it's derived from the Somali word Wobayo, which is arrow poison, derived from French. So it's like this word that- Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So Wabain, and the reason that I, I didn't know anything about this, but we used Wabain in our experiments to feed fruit flies because it's more water soluble than most of the other cardiac glycosides. So just this easy thing to use mm -hmm. in the lab. So my initial comment, I was like, that's a strange name. I wonder what's up with that. Little did I know that Wabane was an essential part of the path that led to the synthesis of the first birth control pill that was widely marketed. And yeah, so they were moving some atoms around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, a synthetic chemist. And this 26-year-old undergraduate from the Autonomous University in Mexico City is the person who synthesized eventually this semi-synthetic progesterone. And experiments that were done on Wabane to convert it to an early form of progesterone turned out to be the essential experiments on which his were built. And so that, that connection was just absolutely shocking that these cardiac glycosides, first clinical trial that we know about, very Incredible. important part of medicine, stuff that I studied, all of a sudden was somehow connected to these giant inedible Mexican yams, <laughs> which is where they got these steroid precursors they needed to make their progesterone, like it's all connected. So that is part of the, 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 the answer to your question. The other one though, I really like the artemisinin story because the, what that also teaches us is that there are these connections between how animals self-medicate and how we self-medicate. And mm -hmm. I guess that's the other thing I learned in writing the book was that in many ways, we're consciously making these decisions. This is culturally inherited information. It's not innate necessarily, although I'm not sure we really know that, but in animals, a lot of it is innate and they're just doing it. So these russet sparrows, which very much look like house sparrows, they're in the same genus, they're very closely related. And in China, these russet sparrows were found to the females would line their nests with wormwood sprigs, fresh wormwood sprigs. And that was shown experimentally by scientists to that behavior keeps uh, pests out of the nest like mites and fleas and ticks that would be harming the nestlings. And so all these, if you smelled wormwood, as you have done, I'm sure you, you'd yes. be like, Ooh, that's so sagebrushy and aromatic and mm -hmm. interesting and astringent and both attractive and not attractive at the same time. And the person you mentioned who won the Nobel prize for discovering that artemisinin could be used to treat malaria. And that's still apparently used as a gold standard cerebral malaria treatment. That is also in wormwood. So these things, again, are interconnected. Yeah. So that, yeah. So that family, the that artemisinin, the wormwood family is super interesting to me too. Yeah, that aster. I could tell you, like when I was studying taxonomy, it was like the asteraceae in general, the daisy family <laughs> 
is like a nightmare because there's like I know. <laughs> yellow flower that looks like a thousand other yellow flowers. Yeah. But with Artemisia, but it, when you think about that as a genus, okay, you have the the sweet wormwood or Artemisia annua, which led to that discovery of right. the animalarial. Then we, of course, have absinthe or yes. Artemisia absinthium, which is where you right. get that beautiful core. And there's another Artemisia I encountered a few years ago. I was working on this island chain off the coast of Sicily. It's called Artemisia arborescens. I think it grows maybe in California as well, or it's cultivated there. But my first encounter with this, I just smelled it. I was like, oh, I just want to crush it up and roll around in the ground on it or bathe with it. I had this like weird human response to this. I, I don't know how to explain it. You're talking about innate versus learned behaviors. I just had this desire to cover myself in this. Yeah. And then I later learned um, through interviews with local villagers that it's actually used to make a kind of healing bath that newborns are bathed in. And it's a spiritual, like using all these rituals. I'm like, I can totally see why. It smells amazing. There's just something. So I can see there's some things that we are just drawn to. And sometimes that can be good. Sometimes that can be bad. And when you wrote about this quite candidly, and I think this is so important to speak about candidly, and that is alcohol use disorder. And family members battling this and how so many substance disorders are also tied to some of these plants that are incredibly important as medicines. We think about the opiates, for example, in the opium poppy. But what did you learn in this journey of introspection when writing about things like alcohol use disorder and other kind of plants that humans can become addicted to? What can you share with us about that? The Artemisia. <laughs> I can totally relate to that. I feel like there's nothing like a smell that to draw us in mm -hmm. and you know, link that to what a plant looks like, where it is, go back to it, tinker mm -hmm. with it, then make a tea out of this. You can just see how these things, right? How these appear. happen. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they show up in, in our cultural history over and over again. Yeah. So one of the things I think that, that was maybe the most surprising in the book was when my dad died of complications from alcohol use disorder, along with several other people in my family, on both sides of my family. I've always tried to keep that separate and compartmentalize it away from my scientific life. And I think that's because I found that science and my career was an escape from that whole situation mm -hmm. and was rewarding in, in that sense. And that I wasn't, no one in my family is a scientist. So it was my own thing. And it allowed me to escape those circumstances. And those circumstances included people who were in many ways wonderful, but would be afflicted by this thing and would become different people when they were under the influence. And this two-sidedness to everything started appearing as a motif, <laughs> mm -hmm. not just the two-sidedness to a chemical, as you mentioned, that could be good or it could be bad. We were talking about that throughout, like the cardiac glycosides, they can be a poison, they can be a cure, right? And the same is true for something like alcohol. Like there's nothing better than a wonderful glass of champagne in my mind on New Year's Eve. But for me, I can only have one glass because I don't really like alcohol. So somehow <laughs> I somehow got super lucky in that way. Mm -hmm. And I saw people around me, my maternal grandmother, my maternal aunt, my dad, you know, his brothers who could not stop drinking. And not only that, but needed it in order to feel normal. And so there was this very confusing element to my interaction with ethanol, I think my whole life. But I also felt like I didn't quite understand it because I was not, I didn't need it. It's not like I needed it. But then I thought, okay, but I'm using my work like that to feel normal. 
And am I addicted to my work? Maybe. And so then I, I started having some empathy and understanding of that. And overwork is a thing. Burnout is a thing, right? Yeah. All of those things. It affects your family if you're working too much, right? Your loved ones. It affects those relationships. So I started having more and more empathy with instead of the, the chemical itself, like what I was doing to my brain to feed that reward system or whatever it was. And maybe I absolutely did inherit a very similar circuitry. It's just that I was lucky to not have it be a drug. Yeah. So I learned, I started learning about addiction in a broad sense and just use disorders. You could call it a work use disorder. And I shouldn't be laughing about it because it, it can, be but yeah. at the same time, I think Humor is something that did get me through life and the book. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff that I wrote about in hindsight, I would, I'll tell people about it, encountering the smell that I had to encounter at when my dad, after my dad died in his trailer was just unbelievably traumatizing, shocking. But at the same time, seeing my brother dressed up in a hazmat suit and taking pictures of him, we had to add some levity to the situation in order to get through it. So I learned so many things about the two-sidedness of life, about the duality of everything, which is why we chose that sort of Dutch golden age vanitas for the cover where yeah. that it's the vanity of life. Everyone is going to die. Even the richest mm -hmm. among us are going to die. And yes, many of them try to stave it off, but it's <laughs> coming <laughs> for all. Yeah. And there's a beauty and a sadness to, I think, everything. And that is something that appeared over and over. So I don't know if that's an answer to your question. No, I think it totally is. It's that duality of, yeah. and I think I also appreciated that mentioned a couple of times, I think in the book, this idea that things that are natural are not necessarily safe, right? right? This is a lesson I really try to reiterate to my students. And because I think there is with marketing towards natural remedies, there's this idea, I don't want a synthetic pharmaceutical but if it's a if it's natural, it's going to be much better for me. There are lots of things in nature that will absolutely kill you. Things you, you can take on a dare. I think you had one vignette about a guy that he swallowed a newt or something like. And you swallowed like, a rough skin newt or a Pacific newt that had tetrodotoxin, like they all do, and it killed him. And it was on a dare. He was drunk. He, they, I yeah. think, they thing and were drinking. He drank whiskey, got drunk. His friend dared him to eat a newt. He did, and he died. Wow. So don't eat weird reptilian-like creatures when you're out camping. Yeah, it's, that tetrodotoxin is, is also found yeah. in the pufferfish and fugu. It's found in the mm -hmm. ringed octopus. It's found in a variety of marine creatures, probably derived from bacteria that are making it, that are living symbiotically with those animals. Mm -hmm. But to your point, which is a very good one, it's the appeal to nature fallacy, I think, that was really at the heart of the book in some ways. And mm -hmm. just as you say... I do think that there is a false impression that most people have that natural products are inherently safe or safer for us than synthetic products. And that is just not true. And if anything, maybe the opposite is true if you really think about it. But I think that the message in the book is that none of these chemicals evolve for us. They all evolve, the, the ability of the organisms to make them evolve before humans were around. So how could they have been for us, right? Unless we invoke some very simplistic theological argument, which just there's no evidence for that, right? All the evidence we have in the evolutionary record indicates that these chemicals, the first liverworts had them, right? And that's 400 million years ago. These, this battle between microbes, animals, and plants 
has been raging for a long time. And many of these chemicals arose perhaps for different functions, but were co-opted as defenses. And that is why they're here. They're here to, they're here to protect the plant or to enhance the plant's fitness somehow, or mushroom or other organism, including animals that make them. And they're not here for us. So we need to remember that because if we remember that and we think about why they first evolved, we can see that, yes, this appeal to nature thing doesn't work. It, there's no truth to it. I think that, you know, the, the reason I bring up these tragic stories, not just of the guy who died from eating a newt, like some people loved him. He, so yeah. he that or the 15 year old in Australia who died of a caffeine overdose because he got a hold of caffeine powder and put it in his shake, kissed his parents goodnight, took drank the shake and died. Mm -hmm. So these stories that are peppered in the book are to remind us that these things are natural products, but they can be deadly in the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong dose. They didn't evolve for us. We have to be very careful when we're thinking about. Yeah. No, I'm especially concerned with our current trends, both in terms of within the performance supplement market, caffeine powder, in my mind, should not be something that's available on sale, period, because you can having caffeine at such a high level is incredibly dangerous, incredibly dangerous. Healthy people, like you're saying, and peak fitness can die from these caffeine overdoses. And the same, I think, has happened within the vape market with nicotine. When I was when I was a younger person, you could have okay, you could measure your nicotine but based on the number of cigarettes you smoked exactly. in a week. Right? right now, it's like how many cigarettes is in that vape? Which oh. are how much are you actually getting in terms of nicotine load, and how much can our brains actually handle? And the same with THC. There's just this extreme level of consumption that I think consumers aren't aware. Of. This is so far beyond anything that's remotely normal in the natural world. Period, where we're hyper concentrating these very potent pharmacologically active molecules that can be very dangerous for us. And I, this is one area where I feel like we really need a lot more government regulation around these industries because it's just not safe and it's getting out into more and more hands every day. Yeah, I completely agree with that assessment. And in the book, I talk a little bit about vaping, both nicotine and THC and what we know about it in terms of the potential health consequences one yeah. way or one way or another. And I, what I would say is that so much is unclear about it, that it's, it scares me that we have such high consumption rates, so widespread, especially among young people. And we know so little about the long-term effects of it. But what I've seen, it's, yes, it's probably safer than actually smoking a tobacco cigarette, but that is not a great comparison point. Right? It's yeah. Like, and I don't, I would almost push back on that because is it just comparing head to head, like the levels of nicotine you're getting? Oh, yes. Yes. Plus the heavy metals and other right. chemicals that are like, yeah. I don't know. I, I want to look deeper into the what research says it's safer because I've also met with chemists that have studied this. There's a lot of horrific things, even in the, the products that are being sold in regular stores that right, could be right. harmful to your lungs. It's, yes, additives, yeah. things that are in mm -hmm. the devices themselves or residues, heavy metals, yes. that are, right? It's, and it's just, there's a lot of unknowns. And the part that's hard is, you're right, like with the cigarette, it's, it's tobacco leaves, yes, that we you know. know what you're getting. It's not good for you. I'm not saying well, cigarettes are good yeah, for yeah. you, but, but it's a no yeah, it's. I think you're right, though. It's, it seems like they're both, bad potentially in, in, in a real sense. And what I was worried about in particular with the nicotine vaping studies that had been done in um, mice 
was the formation of some of these tumors in their lungs at just with the nicotine um, in a solvent compared to the solvent. And that was shocking to me because um, most of the research I had done suggested that nicotine itself isn't a carcinogen, but it gets transformed into nitrosamines and things like that can't, that are, you know? And so the question is, there's a combustion process with the vaping, right? So what is that? What are the nitrosamine levels there? I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. So it's scary to me that because it's like nicotine itself, like, you know, just if I took a pill of nicotine or something, that might be lower nitrosamine levels because there's no combustion. There's still going to be some that are converted by metabolic processes in the body to nitrosamines. And the reason those are problematic is those cause mutations. Those are genotoxic chemicals. And but and yes, maybe nicotine enhances some things like cog maybe some memory things, cognitive performance, but the trade-offs is what it does to your cardiovascular system potentially, right? And the cancer risk. So I'm very concerned too. And as you mentioned, THC is in the same boat in, for different reasons, but also vaping that. And then the stuff that's in the, that has, is possibly in that solvent in, in the, where the THC is dissolved, that potentially caused lots of problems. Remember with the, I think it was vitamin K acetate, right? Yeah, that that was causing major lung problems for especially young people. That was so concerning. It made national news, right? And there mm -hmm. was maybe finally a little bit of a regulatory crackdown. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's incredible how sometimes the market hype and the market itself can outpace our ability to understand this as scientists. And I think it's important for all the folks listening is just because something is being sold on the market does not mean that it's safe, does not mean that it's scientifically better or healthier in any way from any other product. A lot of that research has just not been done. And so just to be careful with that and realize we do delight in our poisons. There are things that humans do enjoy in, in the natural world in poisons. You, you wrote also about like piperine and, and mm. like, why do we like spicy foods and mustards and capsaicin? One of my colleagues won the Nobel Prize for his work on capsaicin and trippy David Julius' yeah. his work. Yeah. It's, there's, so there's this desire for poisons in our lives, but we have to be careful. <laughs> we don't overdo it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's like asking yourself, why did the pepper plant, the red pepper plant evolve to make capsaicin? Why did the black pepper plant evolve to make these piperine, yeah. pyridine alkaloids? Why are those there? And we might not always know that. And we may never know why something initially evolved, but we can know at least what it's doing now in those plants. And it's basically, in most cases, it looks like they're bothering to make it instead of investing in pollen or seeds. Mm -hmm. to protect them, their tissues from being eaten or yeah. somehow manipulate or filter out pollinators or fruit dispersers and getting the right one there. Yeah. There's a lot of subterfuge. Yeah. It's all that chemical chatter. I like to think of it as, as nature's yeah, chemical right. language. And one last one I'll end on is maybe you could tell us a little bit about putrescin and your example of the Titan Arum. This is one of my favorite plants at Botanic Gardens. It gets a lot of attention. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So these are the largest flowers in the world, I think. They're like, mm -hmm. what, 10 feet tall, some Huge. of them? Huge. Huge. Uh -huh. And for people who have around parks, gardens, you can see relatives of these, like skunk cabbage is a relative of these plants. You have some in your house that might be in the same family, and right? These mm -hmm. arums are all members of the arum family. 
And many of them have deceptive pollination systems. And what that means is these flowers emit odors that are attractive often to carrion feeding insects. So things like flies, things like beetles, burying beetles, things like that, that would come and be tricked into entering the flower and getting pollen and, or even sometimes getting trapped in the flower by the flower and then released uh, in this sort of amazing kind of uh, repertoire that the flower has that unfolds where initially the fly might get trapped in a labyrinth of stamens. And then the stamens, after the pollen is dehissed onto the insect, the stamens wilt away and then the insect is free to leave and go to another arum that is falsely attracted to. This deception, this signal receiver deception is fascinating to me. And that corpse flower you mentioned produces this bouquet of dead smells. And it's described as a fetid chimney because these arums also heat themselves up. As, so they have this ability to become endothermic for part of their life cycle. They heat themselves up. And so this terrible odor is moved up through the canopy of the rainforest where they're endemic in Southeast Asia to it. And that ends up having a much larger impact because all these insects then are brought in. And if there's multiple of these plants flowering, that's great from the individual plants point of view, because then they get outcrossed. Pollen gets moved between plants. Genetic diversity of the babies goes up, which is a very fit strategy. So you got to think. that like a true evolutionary biologist. I love it. <laughs> right. But the putrescine thing is interesting because some of these chemicals are also the basis of making alkaloids by the plant. Mm -hmm. So the same chemical that's like a product of amino acid degradation can also be the source of something like an alkaloid that is used as a defense. And so that's, again, the two sidedness of it all. Right. Fantastic. Foodies, if you didn't think plant chemistry was cool enough already, hopefully by now you're really convinced. <laughs> I want to make sure we give everybody info on where they can find your book. Again, this is Most Delicious Poison, The Story of Nature's Toxins from Spices to Vices, which, by the way, fabulous title. I love that in the subtitle. And you can find this anywhere in bookstores, right? You, can you tell us what your website is? Yes. And it's a Shakespearean quote that I talk about in the book, where it came from, the Antony mm -hmm. Cleopatra, the play. And Cleopatra, Shakespeare's character, knew about the two-sidedness of it all. And that is right where the title comes from. But yes, you can buy it at any uh, bookstore from the online stores like Amazon. It's available in the UK and Commonwealth. Here's that cover. Slightly, they flip the wording of the subtitle. So this one is Most Delicious Poison from Spices to Vices, The Story of Nature's Toxins. <laughs> so, hey, awesome. Yeah. But yes, you can, uh, there's an audio book that I narrated. There's 11 hours and eight minutes of me going on about nature. Amazing. Stuff. Was that like the hardest thing to do ever? I did my oh, book as well. Okay. And I had to go through so much herbal tea just to keep my voice. <laughs> yes, I had lots of lozenges <laughs> sitting there. It was really difficult. I have a lot of respect for voice me too. actors. Me too. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Okay, foodies, most delicious poison. You can find this at all bookstores in person or online. Thank you so much, Noah, for coming on the show. And thanks for writing such a great book. This is a lot of fun. I'm, I'm excited to recommend this to my students as well. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you for writing your book. And this was one of my favorite conversations I've had about the book so far. Oh, thanks. All right, you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded for you today on Squadcast. 
But if you want to find out more about this and our other episodes, you can head over to our website at foodiepharmacology.com. We've got lots of great links there to both the audio version of the show as well as your video versions available on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. You can also pick up some great fun merch or support us by buying me a coffee. I promise I will not do it as a French press coffee. I'll do it as a drip. You can do that at Buy Me A Coffee. The link's also there on our website. Thanks so much for listening. Also, thanks to our producers, Rob Cohen and Christine Roth, for being a great show for us each and every week. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.